Good evening, everyone. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5, 1 John, the fifth chapter. Um, and Callie is going to go ahead and take us away with our scripture reading tonight. Everyone who believes that Jesus the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is that that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Well, this comes out of 1 John chapter 5, and thank you, Callie, for reading that for us as we continue on in our teaching series, working through the letters of John. Here's where we're at. I'll just give you the update. Uh, we're going to do the first half of chapter 5 tonight. Uh, next week, Pastor Brian Williams is going to do the second half of chapter 5, uh, and then I'll come back and we'll finish uh, with 2 John for a week and 3 John for a week, and then it will be Thanksgiving, and we will get into the most wonderful time of the year. So that's the plan. Uh, that's where we are going, but tonight we'll be in 1 John chapter 5 into the final chapter of this epic letter we been looking at. Uh, I don't do this all the time, but I just want to make it real simple where I'm going tonight. I want to give you my outline for the whole sermon right here. Um, so this is the outline. Uh, you can put it up on the screen. Um, we're going to talk about the evidence of our faith in the first five verses. We're going to talk about the object of our faith in the next few verses. And then we're going to talk about the outcome of our faith. The evidence of our faith, the object of our faith, the outcome of our faith. That's where we're going tonight. I want to be real honest with you. I spent an enormous amount of time this week trying to figure out a way to find a word that started with an O on this one, all right? Like, if you know preachers at all, like, we love to have the same letter going over and over and over, but I'm just going to confess I failed you all this week, all right? So I'm going to live under that shame, but that's actually what the text teaches, so i got to go with that rather than what's clever, but man, I tried hard. Now, here's my goal tonight. I just have a really simple aim and purpose in this sermon. There's nothing you're going to hear tonight that's like, wow, mind blown, never thought of that before. Uh, I just think tonight we have one simple goal, and that's this, that the aim of this sermon is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. Two groups of people I think might be in this room listening online, listening on the podcast later. Two groups. Number one, some of you are troubled. When I say troubled, I just mean when it comes to your faith, when it comes to your relationship with God, when it comes to this faith part of your life, you're troubled. You don't feel strong enough. You don't feel good enough. You don't feel like you read your Bible enough or pray enough. You feel like you stumble into too much sin, like you desire to love God, and yet you just don't feel like you're ever good enough. And if that's you tonight, if I am describing you that you feel like you want so badly to please God and honor him and follow him with your life, but you keep falling short, I hope tonight's sermon is a great comfort to you. I hope you leave just lifted up and encouraged, knowing that the God of the universe is with you right in the midst of your stumbling. Like, I hope some of you leave tonight so comforted. But, but then perhaps there's a second group of you, and I don't know how many of this is, this is but, but perhaps there are some of you that are listening and you just feel comfortable in your faith. You don't think about the struggle. You don't think about where you need to grow in holiness. You don't really have anything in your life that reflects the serious desire to get to God, know God more. You've just put your faith in cruise control. And if that's you tonight, and you're just kind of into this church thing, you show up on Thursdays, but it's not really doing anything in your life, and you've just kind of gone on cruise control, man, I hope tonight's sermon troubles you. I actually hope you have a hard time getting to sleep tonight as the Holy Spirit and you wrestle over what it means to seriously be the type of individual that has faith and belief and trust in Jesus Christ and what the outcome of your life actually is for some of you. I hope tonight lights a fire under you to understand the actual demands that God 
is making out of your life. I want you to see this in 1 John 5. Again, we're going to start in verse 1 if you got your Bibles with us. It says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so right here in this text, I believe these five verses are trying to answer a question a question that people have wondered since the beginning of the faith, something people have wondered for centuries and millennia. It's a question that has troubled believers, and maybe it's a question that's troubled you. I believe it's answering this simple question, and here it is. How? How do I know? How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm right with God? How do I know that my life is actually on track toward eternal life rather than eternal destruction? Christians and believers have been asking this all throughout church history. And here's what I'm convinced of, that Christians living in the West today, like the United States of America, the Western world, need to ask this question constantly. How do I know that I know that I know that if I die tonight, I am going to heaven forever with God? And here's why I think this is important. Because despite all the polling that says Christians fading in America, unless people are going to church, we just all got to agree that Christianity is just in the water system of this country. And so it's just really easy to say, I'm a Christian because you're not a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu. It's really easy to say, I'm a Christian because you grew up going to church or got baptized as a kid. It's really easy for the hundreds, if not thousands of students that I've taken to Hume Lake over the years, just to say, I'm a Christian because I went to Hume at one point and threw my hand in the air when they gave an invitation. And I don't want to belittle that moment. I just want to say, that doesn't make you a Christian. Like there is this thing in us where we need to examine, am I just saying I'm following after Jesus because that's what my parents did or that's what people in my circle do? Or am I seriously in an eternal saving relationship with Jesus Christ? In other words, how do I know that I'm saved? And I think the first five verses of 1 John 5 try to answer this question for us. They answer the question, how do I know that I'm saved? And they answer it by giving us some signposts, some directions, some things that we might see in our lives. And if we see these things in our life, we can start to be confident that the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and that we're saved. This is not going to give us things we have to do in order to be saved, but rather it's going to give us signposts, images. It's going to give us the idea, if you see this in your life, you can be confident that you are heading toward eternal life. Like, let me put it to you this way. I'll give you a kind of analogy metaphor tonight. I want you to imagine that you were deciding um, tonight after YA. Now, people like me, after YA, we go to bed, okay? But some of you, like YA ends, and you're like, the night is beginning. Like, not for me, but for you. And for some of you, the night is beginning. You're like, let's go somewhere. Like, imagine you said after tonight, let's go to downtown Los Angeles. Now, if you were going to downtown Los Angeles... Or let's say someone you know was going to downtown Los Angeles and you were trying to help them understand how to get there. They had never been there before. You might kind of tell them some things to look out for. So let's just make up a scenario here. Three signs that you're on your way to downtown LA. Number one, you pass the worst intersection in the world, the 405-101 freeway, amen? Worst place in the world. And then you'll see the Capitol Records building, right? A big circular building. And then you will sit in soul-depleting, mind-numbing traffic, right? Like, 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 if you were to say, I'm on my way to downtown LA, I just passed 405-101, am I going in the right direction? All of us would be like, yep, you're right. 
I just saw the Capitol Records building, very trendy, little dated. What is that? You're in the right direction. I haven't moved in my vehicle for 14 minutes. Am I in the right spot? You're right there. We all know this, right? And if someone called you and they're like, I'm on my way to downtown LA, um, but I just passed the 23101 intersection. You'd be like, no, 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 wrong way. If you said, I, I, I'm in a place and I see the ocean and it says, welcome to Santa Barbara. We'd be like, no, wrong direction, right? What's my point? My, my point is that there are these signposts that you can see on the way to downtown LA that tell you you're heading in the right direction. The signposts don't get you to LA. They're just something you'll see along the way. And here's what I want to give you out of the first five verses of 1 John 5. Three signs, three signposts that we, that you, that I, am on the way to eternal life. Three things I see in this verse is the first is right theology. Right theology. It begins with this claim that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So, so at the beginning, it needs to have this right thinking about God. If you don't understand who God is, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know what God has done to accomplish salvation on your behalf, I'm skeptical of whether or not you're heading toward Jesus. Now, now don't get me wrong here. I just don't want anyone to misunderstand. It's not like the sign you know Jesus is you're some kind of Bible whiz who knows all sorts of Greek and Hebrew words and complicated big theology words. I'm not saying that at all. What does this verse say? Anyone who believes, confesses, testifies, that Jesus is the Christ, which is the word for Messiah, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, that person's born of God. Like in other words, if you understand who Jesus is, this is the theology test. Not that you know everything there is to know, but are you having a proper understanding of who Jesus is? If you say, you know what, I don't know everything, but I know who Jesus is. I know he saved me. I know he's rescued me. That is a signpost on the way to eternal life. Let me give you the next one here. It's right morals. Right morals, you could say right behavior, you could say holiness, us actually walking in the way Jesus walked. It says in verse two, this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving and carrying out his commandments. In fact, this is love for God. What is love for God? To keep his commandments. Like, here's my question for you. Are you serious about keeping the commandments of God? Even the ones you don't like, even the ones you don't prefer, even the ones that make you uncomfortable, even the ones that make you unpopular in your friend group. Are you serious about keeping his commandments? And I'm not saying, do you always perfectly keep them? Like the whole book of 1 John basically says, you're gonna stumble and fall, and yet there's this one who will forgive us and atone for our sins, right? So the idea of right morals isn't, well, if you ever sin, you're not on the way to heaven. The idea is, do you have that desire to walk in obedience to God's commandments? Is obedience to God even part of your vocabulary? And here's what I know for so many of you. The answer is yes. You don't do it perfectly. You don't nail it every time, but you know that your desire in life is to walk in submission and obedience to God, to say, God, my life is forfeit. It's not my own. And if you could say that's true of your life, not perfection, but desire, you are, that is a signpost on the way to eternal life. And then here's the final one we'll see in here is right relationships. You notice how it says in here that this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commandments. But like what we're looking at here is the children of God and our love for the children of God. We've talked about this over and over and over again in the series, that part of what the evidence that comes out of your life that you truly actually love God is that you love God's children, is that you love other Christians, and that you sincerely love and care for other Christians, including and especially those who disagree with you, including and especially the people who annoy you and frustrate you, that you kind of have like a brotherly, sisterly love. And we've talked about this kind of love, right? It's not a best friend kind of love. 
It's not like you and I are just the same and we hang out all the time and love each other kind of love. I have best friends, but I love them in a different way than my brothers. And if you have sisters, you love them in a different way than your sisters. A brother-sister kind of love might say, sometimes you frustrate me and you irritate me, but I'm in with you forever. And here's my question. Do you have right relationships in your life? The way you love people, is that evidence of that, that you love people as the child of God, even if you don't agree with them or particularly care for their presence? Do you have a deep love for them that says, no matter what, I'm in with you because you are a child of God? Again, none of these things are how you earn salvation. None of these things are the way you get to heaven. And none of these things are the way you get right with God. But they are signposts along the road toward eternal life. Like, let me give you a different metaphor here from road um, to tree. We, we've said this before, I'll say it again. The root of our salvation, the root of our salvation is the gospel, okay? To make it really abundantly clear, Jesus Christ died on this cross for your sins, rose from the dead for your salvation. Your salvation was 100% God, 0% you. Let's make sure no one misunderstands. It wasn't like a 50-50 prop where God's like, I'll do a bit, but you got to do your part. That's not how salvation works. Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, rises from the dead, and that when we trust in him, we are made whole, forgiven of our sins, made a child of God, and given a home in heaven forevermore. The root of your salvation, the source of your salvation is Jesus. But let me say this this way, that the fruit of our salvation is right theology, right morals, and right relationships. And when I see that coming out in my life, this fruit of the Holy Spirit of God living inside of me, I can begin to be confident that I'm on my way to eternal life. I can answer the question, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, listen, how do I get saved? The answer is always going to be Jesus. But what 1 John is going to try to give us are some evidences and fruits of our life that help us have confidence that we truly know, trust, and profess who Jesus is. It goes on this way in verse 6 of chapter 5. It says, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Now, if I just read that paragraph of scripture to you and you are wildly confused, that would make you normal, okay? This is a different, this is like notoriously difficult, okay? Like I have huge, big, like commentary books on every book of the Bible. And this one takes up like endless pages, all right? No one agrees on it. No one's quite certain what we said, but for, for sure when we get to heaven, we'll sit with John and just be like, explain this to us, okay? And, and I'm sure he'll look at us and be like, ah, you simple people, but then he'll do it because he's loving, like all that kind of things, right? I, I just want to, I want to explain what it means in a moment. But, but I actually just want to give some of you some freedom when you go read your Bible, I want you to know it took me like hours to really wrestle this to the ground this week. Like I've read it before, I've wrestled with it before, but I was really thinking through it. And I want to understand that when you read through the Bible and something's confusing to you, it's actually okay for you to admit that it's confusing to you. You're not less of a Christian because the Bible is confusing. In fact, one of the most honoring, God-honoring, humble things you can do in your life is to say, I don't understand this passage. I'm going to skip over it and come back to it later. I don't understand this passage. I'm going to look up some resources on it, or even better, I don't understand this passage, so I'm going to humble myself and ask someone else to explain it to me. Like, that's what we ought to do when we read the Bible. So there are going to be these confusing passages, including this one. It's talking about the water. It's talking about the blood. It's talking about the spirit, and all three are in agreement. You're like, where is this coming from? And here's what I want us to know. I want us to know that this is a confusing passage, 
And, and yet when we pick through it, what we'll really clearly and simply see is this, that this passage is describing this, three reasons to be confident in Jesus. And that might sound so bizarre to you, but the three reasons, this water, this blood, and this spirit are three reasons you and I can be confident in Jesus. That the first one it references is the water, right? And here's what the water represents. The water represents Jesus's baptism. Water all throughout the New Testament represents our baptism. And if you don't know the story in the beginning of the gospels, Jesus is baptized in the water. And, and then it says, the spirit descends like a dove and a voice from heaven, the father declares, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. At Jesus's baptism, he is announced as God's son in whom God is well pleased. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus's baptism is an announcement, not for Jesus' sake. It's an announcement for our sake, that we would know that this is the Son of God. This is God in human flesh. This is the very image of God, the book of Hebrews tells us. This is what the water does. When we see the word water there, we should go, yes, that's referring to Jesus' baptism. Jesus, the one who is announced as God's Son. The second thing it says is the water, and the second one is the blood. The blood all throughout the New Testament is always going to be a word that stands in for the cross. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where he bleeds and dies for our sins. We're on the cross of Jesus. Like if you don't know the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, it's that on the cross, God takes the punishment for my sins and for yours. And instead of inflicting it on me, inflicts it on his son, Jesus, who willingly, joyfully, and lovingly absorbs it for our behalf. Like when I look to Jesus and when I see Jesus on the cross, like every week when you walk in this place and you see that cross hanging up on the wall, you should look to it and say, that's the reason I'm alive. That's the reason God says you are forgiven and free. That's the reason I can come boldly into worship. That's the reason I can trust God because if God loves me enough to have his son die for me, what else would he possibly withhold from me? Like we want to talk about the water where Jesus is announced as God's son. We want to talk about the blood where Jesus dies for us on the cross. And then finally, we want to talk about the spirit. The spirit, this is the same spirit that raised that same Jesus from the dead. The New Testament says lives inside of us. What's the point of these three? The water, the blood, and the spirit. The point is to direct our attention to Jesus, to remind us, that the great center of our faith is not our faith, it's the object of our faith. Well, like, let me put it to you this way tonight. I want you to understand the significance of looking toward and thinking toward Jesus. I want to free someone tonight to recognize this, that salvation is not found in the strength of your faith. Let me say that again for someone who needs to hear this. Your salvation is not found in how strong your faith is. I hear people all the time tell me, Brian, my faith isn't strong enough. I feel like my faith isn't good enough. I feel like my faith isn't as strong as someone else's. And people say this with like a level of shame and guilt, like they're not good enough and God can never love them. Can I just free you tonight to know this? Your salvation is not based on the strength of your faith. Can I remind someone that your salvation is found in the object of your faith? Your salvation is not on how strong you are, it's on how strong Jesus is. And so what is this passage, this paragraph in 1 John trying to get us to do? It's trying to get us to think about how strong Jesus is. Because it's Jesus' strength and Jesus' perfection and Jesus' faithfulness that saves us, not ours. Like it is the faithfulness of Christ, not the faithfulness of Brian Howard, that's going to bring me into heaven someday. And praise God for that. 
Now, like, let me put it to you in an image form to, um, this evening. Um, I want you to imagine bungee jumping. Uh, and I have a question for the room. Who here has been bungee jumping? Like, okay, a few of you across the room. There, there wasn't like a lot of enthusiasm around that. Like, okay, a, a handful of you though. Now here's the question. Even if you haven't been bungee jumping, you get the concept, right? Here's the dude, you're jumping off a bridge, tied to a rope. Here's my question for you. If this person is jumping off the bridge, terrified, not feeling good about this at all, not wanting to do it, but they've signed up for it and their friend's like, here you go, buddy, and pushes them off and they have no confidence at all that they're gonna be okay, does that have any impact on whether or not they're going to be safe during the bungee jump? None. Zero, right? Because here's what all of us intuitively understand. The reason you make it safe from the bungee jump isn't how you feel on the inside during the bungee jump. What is it based on? It's not based on what happens inside of me. It's based on how strong this rope is, right? How strong this harness is and how strong the thing it's tied to it, right? It's based on something outside of you and its strength, not yours. So if you're bungee jumping and you're super confident, you're like, I've done this a hundred times and you go, or you're bungee jumping and you're terrified, you've never done this and you're not even sure you're gonna make it out alive, it makes zero difference to whether or not you'll survive. And I need someone to understand this, that if you feel like you have weak, small faith, or you feel like you have the greatest faith in the world, Jesus saves both people. He rescues both people because your salvation is not found in the strength of your faith. Now, let me put it to you this way. If you do go bungee jumping, and if you do jump off the bridge, and you are so certain that this rope is gonna hold you, you're gonna have a better experience than the person who's pretty sure they're gonna die, right? Like if you've done it 100 times, and this is your 200th time bungee jumping, you're gonna jump with like a confidence of like, let's go, right? And you're gonna have more joy. You're gonna have more peace. That's the same is true with your faith. So listen, I'm not trying to be down on you having a strong faith within you. I think you having a strong faith within you is what allows you to jump off the edge with Jesus and know you're gonna be okay. But I want you to know this. If you're in the room tonight and you just feel like my faith isn't strong enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not close enough to Jesus, I want you to know this. Maybe I can free someone tonight from this. That your feelings, your feelings do not determine the facts of your salvation. Your feelings don't determine the facts of your salvation. Jesus determines the facts of your salvation. And he's already died on the cross. He's already come up from the grave. And all you get to do is trust in him. And your faith might be as small as a mustard seed or as big as a mountain, and he'll save you no matter what. This is the good news of the gospel that someone needs to be freed from tonight. That it is not your strength of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith. It goes on this way in verse 10. It says, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. And whoever does not believe in God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us. I want you to circle that, underline that. It has given us, he's already given us eternal life. And this is life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Meaning anyone, the worst sinner or the greatest saint, anyone who has the son has life. Whatever your background is, whatever your current day is, whatever's going on in your life, whoever has the son has life. And then whoever does not have the son does not have life. And then here's verse 13. I want you to see this. John kind of breaks out of the paragraph for a moment. He goes, listen, everyone, I write these things to you. What are these things? The entire book of 1 John. Why was the book of 1 John written? We're about to discover it. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
What's the purpose of the book of 1 John? He says it right here, that you may know, like that you would know that you know that you know, that you would have confidence, that you would be the type of person who knows if you get in your car and get on an accident on the one-on-one freeway and it takes your life tonight, you wake up in glory. That you would know that you have that eternal life and that you would know that you have what? The eternal life that Jesus wants for you. This is the burden of the New Testament. This is the burden of 1 John that you would know that you already have eternal life. I'll say that again in case you missed that. You already have eternal life. Like I'll say it this way. You don't have to wait for eternal life because it's already here. If you know Jesus and if you trust him and you love him, your life will extend all the way into eternity. You don't have to wait until you die. Eternal life doesn't start the day you die. Eternal life starts now. Listen, you don't have to work toward eternal life. You don't have to work toward eternal life because it's already yours. It's already yours. It'd be like if your boss said, hey, I'm gonna give you a promotion and you got the promotion and you showed up on your first day and you said, boss, I'm gonna earn that promotion. And he or she is just like, listen, you've already earned it. It's already been given to you. You don't have to earn the promotion. It's already yours. And then finally, listen, you don't have to worry about eternal life because it's already been given. You don't have to stress or worry, is it mine? It's like about a month ago, it was my daughter's birthday and her, do- her birthday is on October 4th. But on October 2nd, we had a big birthday party for her. And we have this big birthday party and she opens up all of these presents two days before her birthday. Could you imagine if I was like, hey, all these presents are cool, but it's not your birthday yet. So I'm gonna go ahead and take them back, right? I'd be like the worst dad ever. What did I say to her? It was like, yeah, go play with your new toys. Go enjoy it, why? Because it's already hers. She didn't have to sit around being like, oh, my birthday's coming and then I'll get to play with the toys. It's like, it's already hers. She doesn't have to worry. She doesn't have to wait. She doesn't have to work toward it. It's already hers. It's already in her possession. Child of God, eternal life is already in your possession. It's already yours. And you will die someday and yet you will wake up in glory and there will be a continuity to your life that takes you forever more. See, this thinking about eternal life is so significant for us to get as believers. Um, Eternal life is this great promise of the New Testament the eternal life that Jesus wants to offer us. And, and there's been this weird thing in like church world over the last, you know, forever. Um, and what's happened is that occasionally the church has fallen into this strange spot where it's like talking about eternal life and really all they want to talk about is like what happens after you die. And so there kind of becomes this like mode where like, it's just like you accept Jesus and then you're miserable for 50 years, but you die and then it'll be good. And everyone's like, okay, I guess that's better than hell, right? And so they sign up for it. And then some people reacting to that in the church, like never talk about heaven. They never talk about life eternal. And they're just like, it's abundant life now. And you're like, yes, and life is better and college is better and marriage is better and friendship is better. And that's true. But like you miss out on the whole like eternal life in heaven with God. And what do we want to be? We want to try to be a church that says it's both, okay? Eternal life means you're going to have this abundant life in Jesus now, but you're also going to have this eternal life in heaven with him. And my concern for some of you, and maybe it's not all of you, maybe you didn't grow up in this church or in our kind of culture or our kind of subset of Christian thought, but my concern for some of you is you almost never think about heaven. And maybe you never think about heaven because you're young and you just assume like heaven's something you'll think about when you're old, but like you're not promised tomorrow and neither am I. It's like, why don't we be thinking about where we're going to spend all of eternity? Why don't we be thinking about what it means to inherit eternal life from God? Why don't we be thinking about what it means to live and rule and reign with Christ now and forevermore? And here's why I think that matters for you right now. 
Not when you're 85 years old, not when you're on your deathbed. Here's why I think it matters. Because I just want to point out one small thing about your life that's true for you, and it's true for me. I want to point out that every moment of your present life is marked by a scarcity of time. You ever notice you don't have time to do everything you want to do? You ever notice how, how often people are like, you got, you, you have got to watch this new television show. And I'm like, ah, I've already got like 16 shows in the queue and I feel this pressure and this burden and I don't have enough time to watch the show you want me to watch. Anyone else here a book person? I'm a big book person. Okay, just like four of you. Okay, cool. But like, I'm this big book person and I just find myself constantly ordering new books rather than reading the books I've already gotten, right? And I'm always like, oh, I would love to read more, but I don't have time. I don't have time to read all the books I want to read. Let me ask this way. Anyone here a national park person or like a nature person? You love going on hikes and camping and nature and exploring. Okay, more people. Some enthusiasm there. I got to be honest with you. I love the great indoors. Not a big nature guy myself. But there are moments where I look around. I'm like, oh, the outdoors are pretty cool. Like, like, like from time to time, I'll, I'll take groups of students here up to Hume Lake uh, up in Kings Canyon um, National Park. And it's beautiful up there. But here's the problem. Every time I drive up there, I'm either driving up there to preach a weekend of camp or I'm driving up there with like hundreds of teenagers whose desire and job is to get into trouble, right? And so there's never time for me to just be like, let me just like wander the forest and like look around and really bask in the glory of this. There's never enough time. There's never enough time to see the things we want to see, to go to the places we want to go. There's never enough time to talk to the people you want to talk to. You ever notice that in life? You're like, at one point in your life, you could just text all your friends. You need to be together in an hour. And now you're like, let's hang out. I've got time two years from now on a Tuesday, you know? It's just like there's never enough time. And here's what I want to observe in your life. The fact that there is never enough time to do all the things that you want to do in this world causes ceaseless anxiety in your life. A constant sense of I don't have enough time, I've not accomplished enough, I've not done the things I want to do, seen the things I want to see, watched the things I want to watch, read the books I want to read. There's this constant underlying anxiety and uh, kind of like this restlessness in us because there's never enough time in this life. And yet here's a question I want to ask some of you tonight. What would you do if you knew you had unlimited time? What would you do with your life if you knew your time was unlimited? And I mean unlimited, like completely eternal, like 100 billion years from now, you would still have more time. Well, like I wonder if for some of you, you would actually start to read the books you never thought you could read. If you knew you had more time, some of you would read more. If you knew you had more time, some of you would sleep more, right? If you knew you had more time, I talk about the national parks, some of you are like, I'd go see them, I'd go hang out on them. But what if you had unlimited time? What if it's not like you could go to a national park for a couple days? What if you could spend 10,000 years exploring a national park and then move on to the next one? Like, what if you could spend all the time in the world with friends? You ever had that moment with friends where you're like hanging out with your buddies and it gets late into the night, which again for me is like 9.30, but for some of you it's like 2 a.m. and you didn't even realize it was 2 a.m.? You've just been having the best time, but then you look at the clock and you're like, oh no, I have work or school in the morning. Like, and you just realize you don't have enough time. What if you could just spend eternal time with your friends? Like, what if that conversation that was so good could actually go on forever? See, I want us to ponder this question tonight because these are not hypotheticals. The idea that you could explore the beauty of God's creation forever, the idea that you could think or dream or work on something forever, the idea that you could have deep, rich, meaningful conversations with good food and good drink with people forever, this is not some hypothetical. This is the way the Bible describes heaven. This is how it describes eternal life. 
Like, I want you to understand that the Bible's description of eternal life is that we have this eternity to do all of these things that we could never fit in in this life. And for some of you, that just sounds so out of left field. For some of you, that's that's not what you have in mind for heaven at all. And the reason you don't have that in mind for heaven is because your imagination of heaven is shaped more by cartoons and medieval art than it is by the Bible. Like, for some of you, heaven has so been shaped by, like, this idea. Like, this is heaven. There's a staircase made of clouds, in the clouds, and that's where you go for eternity. And it's like you float away to the floaty place forever. Your soul is kind of like Casper the ghost type situation. You're like, hey, party in the clouds forever. And for some of you, you're like, that just sounds strange. I don't want anything to do with that. Or perhaps some of your visions of heaven has been shaped by an image like this one here. Like there's Jesus in the middle and then there's all of us and we're wearing robes for eternity. And you're like, I don't know how I look at a robe, but I'm not confident it's good. Or or we're playing harps for all of eternity. You're like, I have no musical ability and certainly not the ability to play the harp. And so in your mind, you're just kind of like, that's eternity? Like I just have to play a harp or maybe a trumpet or I don't even know what that is. Like, it's just scary. Or then for some of you, you actually bought into the idea that heaven is the eternal church service. And you're like, Brian, I I dig YA on Thursday nights, but I gotta be honest, the church service that goes on forever sounds like the other place. And and, and I think some of us like don't long for heaven because we've gotten so caught up in like these ideas the Bible doesn't actually teach. Like, do you know that the Bible doesn't teach that heaven is a place your soul floats away to forever and then you just float on the clouds? Doesn't teach that. You know, the Bible doesn't teach that you're ever gonna have wings or a little halo over your head. Doesn't teach that at all. The Bible says nothing about you learning to play the harp or even wearing a robe. Thank God that the Bible does not say that heaven is this eternal church service where we're like, all right, how he loves us round four billion, right? Like it's not that. And some of us have gotten so caught up in the idea that to think about eternal life is to think about like this terribly boring, really poorly drawn image, right? That that we're just thinking is terrible. And, And yet here's what the Bible actually says. Like every time you think about heaven, somewhere, just like turn your Bibles to Revelation 21, second to last chapter of the Bible. First verse says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And then I saw this holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Can I remind you over and over and again, the Bible says whatever wedding party you've ever been to and how awesome it was, it's nothing compared to heaven. Like it is this beautiful party, this riotous celebration of the people of God. And it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. And then for those of you who have walked in the woundedness and brokenness and brutality of this world, it says he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Like God will come close enough to you to pull the tear away from your eye. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I make everything new. And he said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and they're true. This is heaven. Like heaven is not this like boring, terrible place where we float away as souls to a cloud. Here's what heaven is, the best way to think of it. Jesus rose up from the grave and he rose up physically, bodily, literally, gloriously and eternally, five words, physically. Like Jesus literally got out of the grave bodily. Like he actually had a body that you could touch, that he could eat food. He he rose up gloriously. Like there's this glorious newness to his body where it's still Jesus. And yet it's like the better resurrected version of Jesus. It's eternally, 
Like man's going to go on forever. Jesus in this moment is still inhabiting this physical body. And then it's literally. Like it's not a metaphor that Jesus rose up from the grave. It actually happened. And those five things are going to happen to the entire universe. Like, can I just encourage you? Like, Jesus one day, he rose up from the grave, and God's going to do the same thing to the entire cosmos. That's what he's going to do. That's what eternity is. It's like this resurrected, physical, literal, glorious, eternal reality where, like, there's going to be physical earth, like this place. Like, I don't want you to think, like, God's just going to, like, say this earth into the dumpster, and then, like, here's a new one. Thousand Oaks will exist for all of eternity. And for some of you, you're like, ah, Thousand Oaks. But, like, imagine Thousand Oaks my beloved home, like the way God meant it to be in all of its flourishing. Like I just think of this for a moment, just think of what it would mean for you to live in this earth on this beautiful creation God made for all of eternity and for all of the things you always wished and longed and desired to do that you could actually do. Like in my life, I've just had to resign myself to the fact that there are all kinds of beautiful, wonderful places on earth I'll never see. Unless of course I believe in eternal life. Because then if I want to spend 200 million years exploring India, I can and if I want to spend a hundred years speaking to someone who I just want to get to know the depth of their soul, I can. And if I want to invent something or create something or create beautiful music or art for all of eternity, if I want to explore the great cosmos that God's given us, I can. And some of you hear that and you're going, well, isn't heaven like about worshiping Jesus? And my answer is yes. But if you have limited worshiping Jesus to what happens here on this stage when we sing songs, you have missed how big and beautiful worship is. Because the moment you stand on the beach and look at the beauty of God's ocean, the moment you stand on a mountaintop and look at the grandeur of God's creation, and the moment you sit kneecap to kneecap with another human being created in God's image and just relish in that conversation, the God of the universe is being worshipped. And that's what we do for eternity. Like, I want to put into your hearts this excitement. Eternity is not like this, I guess if I have to go there. It's this great adventure you get to go on where we live and rule with Christ, we reign with him forevermore, where there is a new earth, where there's no frustration and pain and anger and heartbreak and cancer and backstabbing, where there's no more racism, no more hate, no more bigotry, no more breakdown in relationship, no more breakdown in families, but everything is the way God intended it to be. Like this is the eternal life you've inherited. And what you have now is leading you on this path into eternity. Like your body will be resurrected one day and you will physically, literally, gloriously, and eternally reign with Christ forevermore. In his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn puts it this way. And there's a, we'll, we'll post this on our Instagram later. I just want, if, if you want to read an awesome book that's describing heaven the way I'm talking about tonight, it's this book by Randy Alcorn. It's nearly 500 pages long, but if you're like, let's go, like order that book, buy it online. It will change your view of heaven, I think for many of you, and give you a spirit that says, I just can't wait to be there. Here's what he says in the final words of that book. He says, referencing Revelation 21, what we just read. He said, these are the words of King Jesus. Count on them, take them to the bank. Live every day in light of them. Make every choice in light of Christ's certain promise. We were made for a person and a place. Jesus is the person. Heaven is the place. If you know Jesus, I'll be with you in that resurrected world. With the Lord we love and the friends we cherish, we'll embark together on the ultimate adventure, this spectacular new universe awaiting our exploration and dominion. Jesus will be at the center of all things and joy will be the very air we breathe. And then he closes this way and he says, and right when we think it doesn't get any better than this, it will. It will. That's the eternity that God promises for you. That every single day you will wake up and it will get better and better and better and better because that's 
the air you breathe in heaven. Jesus is the person. Heaven is the place that we're longing for. And I think the reason we can be so confident that heaven will be better than you could possibly imagine. Like heaven will be a place where the idea that you are bored wouldn't even cross your mind. Heaven is this ultimate place to long for. The reason we can be confident in that is because of Jesus. Jesus is the one that we are created for. We are created for a place which is Jesus, and a, or a place which is heaven, and a person which is Jesus. And that's what we sing about here. That's what we do. We exalt and we lift up Jesus. We center our lives around Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We share the name of Jesus. And we invite people into the gospel of Jesus. This is what we exist for here. Like we exist that we might be a Jesus people through and through. So like right now as our band makes their way up, we're going to sing a song. Um, and this song is a song called Tremble. And, and, and right at the kind of chorus of the song, you'll, you'll see the lyrics here. It says, Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, Jesus, you silence fear. Jesus, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. Jesus, 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 Jesus. 12 times, 12 times in the chorus of the song, we're gonna sing the name of Jesus. We're gonna exalt in the name of Jesus. We're gonna talk about Jesus. We're gonna lift up Jesus. We're gonna center our hearts and our minds around Jesus. Because if you pull Jesus out of the Jenga tower, the entire thing collapses. But when he's in the bottom of it, you have an eternal life that you've inherited, not because of the strength of your faith, but because of Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's who you've inherited eternal life from. That's why you can be confident. You know where you're heading tonight? If tonight you go to bed and don't wake up here, you're heading to glory, not because of you, but because of Jesus. And that's what we built this ministry around. That's what we built this church around. Listen, I want us to understand these three things to our core. This church is about Jesus. This church is always about Jesus. And this church will always be about Jesus. That's who we are here. It's what we're about. And every time the culture or church voices or anyone else tries to pull us into anything else, we're gonna say, Jesus, 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 Jesus. Why? Because 200 trillion years from now, Every silly little thing happening in the news today, everything that seems so dramatic and so important and so big in your life, in your family, in our culture, in our nation, in our world will be a memory, a footnote that is forgotten about. And I need to remind us tonight that eternity will be all about Jesus. We prepare ourselves for eternity when we sing about him, when we talk about him, when we worship Jesus alone, and when we declare that we are a church built around one name and one name alone. And that is the name of Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you that eternal life is ours. We've inherited it. It is ours. It is our possession. God, I pray that someone in this room tonight who feels so weak, so frustrated, so far from you would be comforted knowing that eternal life is theirs and that one day heaven will heal all the sorrows of this world. I just want to pray. I don't even know, what, I just, there's a young woman in this room who just feels so wounded, so deeply hurt, so deeply pained that she would know that someday you'll wipe every tear from her eye. And God, I pray for the person in this room who's apathetic, who hears the name Jesus and does nothing in his heart. God, I pray your Holy Spirit would trouble him, pierce through him, may the hound of heaven just come after him until he turns his life over to the living one, the resurrected one, the glorious one, Christ Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So God, as we sing about his name right now, as we lift up the name of your son, may your spirit be thick in this place. May we know it, may we see it, may we sense it, may we experience it. And may we be a people who exalt in the name of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. We pray this in the name of the resurrected son and all God's people said, amen.